0: Hey everybody, Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today with me, I have Michael Brooks, who is the founder of We Are the 22 uh, here in Arkansas, which is a veteran suicide, I call it a task force, right. uh, basically, is what they do. And, and uh, he is the founder of that, and today we're going to listen to his story and, and how all of that came about. Now, you were in what branch of service?
1: I uh, actually was in the Army National Guard. Okay. Uh, I was. I uh, did a tour in Egypt uh, at the beginning of the War on Terror for six months. I was an infantryman. Uh, I did a tour in Iraq in 0304 as an infantryman. I did Hurricane Katrina as an infantryman. And then I uh, reclassed to a combat engineer, and I did a combat tour as that as well when I was wounded and retired. So...
0: Got gotcha. you. So, the, when you were wounded was in 2007? seven. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about that incident that caused you to be wounded?
1: Sure. So, we were rolling down checkpoint uh, or rolling down Route Tampa in Iraq, uh, the main supply route and uh, hunting IEDs is what we did. I was in the uh, point truck and uh, we took a, a massive one or massive uh, 155 howitzer around. I think there was a couple off the side of the road and they detonated. And uh, I actually took shrapnel on my left hip. Uh, as I was falling into the truck, I blew my right shoulder out. I stayed there for two weeks after that and they were gonna send me home. Uh, and I kind of finagled my way into staying and even going back out on mission two weeks later. And, uh, that was not a good idea because five miles out of the gate that night, I took another debt. That one gave me a big brain injury, uh, ripped my leg back open and got me medevaced out of country. So,
0: gotcha. So, um, we've had, um, Micah Briley, who's Donovan Briley's brother, tell his story and, and uh, then we have uh, Jennifer Legate, who is, um, oh, I'm going to go blank here, Patrick Kordsmeyer, um, her do- uh, his daughter. And in, in talking about how quickly people respond uh, to let the family know that there has been an accident or, or things like that, it seems like it's a hurry up and wait kind of ordeal. Right. Uh, how long did it take for your family to to find out what happened.
1: Actually, when uh, we got in on my first injury, uh, we got into F.O.B. Striker and got into the cache. And uh, right before they attempted to extract the shrapnel, which they couldn't do, it's still in there, uh, they actually gave me a sat phone and I was able to call my family and let them know I'd been wounded and was okay for the most part. And uh, the second time, uh, I was actually already in Germany before I got a chance. So that was pretty much immediate medevac. So. Gotcha.
0: So they, they medevaced you to Germany Mm -hmm. and there's a hospital facility there. And, and what did they do exactly for you at that point? So
1: that was interesting. So at that time, it was was 2007 in uh, April, I believe. And at that time, uh, I'd only ever heard of PTSD. I had no idea what a TBI was. And Mm -hmm. they actually gave me uh, a CT scan, and the doctor pointed at me and he goes, "You have a TBI." Mm-hmm. And I go, "Well, what's that?" And he explained to me I had a traumatic brain injury that was highly visible in my frontal lobe, right. and that has uh, contributed to some of the struggles I've had in my life. Uh, I, it took me a long time to understand how much I'd changed because uh, you don't realize it, you know. Your your people around you do, but, but you feel okay, you feel normal for the most part. Uh, you don't realize that you pick up sometimes, especially with frontal lobe, you pick up compulsive problems. Uh, you Pick up personality issues. Uh, there is a whole range of things that it affects. So. Sure.
0: So a TBI, traumatic brain injury, essentially, uh, in layman's terms, it's a bad concussion that actually damaged your brain. Yes. Uh, so where your your brain is just kind of shook up in your skull. Now, do they relate that to the first accident that you were in, or? Or do they even know when it
1: happened? Well, there's no way of knowing. Uh, I do know that that second blast, uh was bleeding out of my ears, so I was probably, mm-hmm. I probably got a good injury then. But I took, I want to say, six close-range deaths. My first tour and uh, thirteen, my second tour. So, mm-hmm. I actually, had a couple of trucks blown out from under me. So, uh, who knows? Mm-hmm. Really, I just know that uh, it, now I have uh, seizures. I control them with medication, but mm-hmm. it stems from the the brain injury
0: gotcha are they absent seizures where you just kind of space out or you actually convulse
1: yeah so if i don't take my medication uh i'll have petty mall mm-hmm. uh seizures and then uh every every now and then when i'm really stressed i may have a grand mole mm-hmm. uh but on medication i rarely have a breakthrough so but it's
0: non-epileptic no seizures no yeah um which come come from TBIs. Sure. you know they're there are different kinds. Now, I would note that um, there is a difference between having seizures and having like a vasovagal syncope. That's that's due to a lot of stress and right. anxiety, um, and a lot of times the vagal response sometimes ends with just feigning and and not going. Knowing what happened, but in your case, it's an actual convulsive seizure. Sure, uh,
1: oh. occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah. So those are they, those are normally breakthroughs uh, when they they are triggered by my stress. So, mm. uh, but but I haven't had one in quite some time now. So gotcha.
0: Now you're you remember this doctor saying you've got a TBI? What does that mean? Did he tell you anything like, well, this could affect this, 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 and this, <laughs> or was it just? You've got a TBI.
1: No, uh, he, he really didn't go into it. Uh, I'd just been wounded. And, and I'll honestly, I remember that, but a lot of my time in Lundstall was really vague. Uh, I was there for two weeks getting stabilized. They, they flew me to Fort Sam Houston. I spent two years there, retired in 09. During that time, I was actually put in the uh, TBI research program when it was first stood up at the uh, Center for the Intrepid down in Fort Sam. And so I was actually, and I'm still in that program. I will be for the rest of my life. Uh, periodically, I have to get Scans and uh, tests done, uh, and they take that information along with now now thousands of other veterans, and they uh, take that information and they'll study us for the rest of our lives in order to better treat future soldiers who get brain injuries. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, information out there when I was first wounded, and uh, but now today there's been quite leaps and strides in that area. So
0: sure, and we've come a long way in just a little bit of time when it when it comes to certain of diagnosis of uh, whether it be a tbi or whether it be some kind of uh complex ptsd now uh, as a subcategory you were down there for two years Mm -hmm. in in fort sam houston and uh, then you medically retired? Is that what you yes,
1: said? Yes. Uh, at that time, they uh, it was about after the first year, actually. They they told me they were like with seizures and with the shrapnel on your hip and the uh, scarring in my in my leg and everything. I can't run like I used to. I can walk, but uh, you'll see me limp if I get real tired. But essentially, they were like, you can't be an infantryman. You can't be a combat engineer, so we're going to retire you out. And so it took them another year to do that. But I medically retired and uh, Uh, May of So, And
0: what rank did you retire?
1: Well, uh, that's the whole thing. So down there, and this is um, an issue, I'd achieved a higher rank, but I got into trouble. Uh, After the first year, they told me, you know, like, your career is over with, you're done, and they wouldn't send me home. I kind of rebelled and uh, uh, kind of uh, got into some trouble. So I actually retired as an E1. Uh, But here's the thing is that. A lot of the rebellion and everything actually came from, in retrospect, and in, and doctors have told me that a lot of... That's also when my addiction problems kicked off. They had me on, at that time, uh, 60 milligrams of Oxycontin a day, three milligrams of uh, Xanax a day, and then 15 other prescriptions. And a lot of them, everything from Seroquel, Depakote, you name it. And I was so out of my head from the tbi and the ptsd that i was suffering but then you had all those other uh drugs to it and and i like many other veterans ended up going down a really dark path. And uh, I was lucky that I was able to retain my my benefits when I got out. Uh, I had a general, a two-star, uh, General Gilman, actually, I remember. Uh, he, uh, he actually, I have a Valor decoration and Purple decorated multiple tours, and he actually saved me and was like, look, this guy just needs to go home, and we're not going to, you know, take everything from him. And so I was very lucky in that regard. A lot of guys weren't.
0: So. Having a TBI, the frontal cortex, which... Controls all kinds of things when it comes to our emotions, uh, but it also controls some of our fine motor skills. Mm. Did you have any loss of fine motor?
1: I had speech issues. Uh, So that was my main thing. I actually had a stutter. I had to take speech pathology for about a year and uh, learn how to slow down in my speaking to catch up to my thinking. Uh, there was like a disconnect there. And so that was it. I didn't really lose a lot of fine motor skills. I had the seizures and I had the speech issues, but they've kind of cleared up. If I'm really tired and I'm not thinking or being conscious about it, I'll stutter a little more. Uh, but I've really kind of got that under control now. it's been a long time. But uh, that was the main thing that affected me.
0: Gotcha. So when you, when you look back, the first time that you had some kind of, for lack of a better word episode in in respect to PTSD, can you kind of explain to me what that looked like, what that felt like to you?
1: So uh, I mean, I had I had immediate anger problems. And that was one thing that, looking back, that I didn't recognize that I was going through. And I would just, and like a light, like a light switch, just rage out. And uh, and I did that a lot. In fact, my own mother one time told me, being around me shortly after I was wounded, told me it was like being around a cold spring. I was so tense. Uh, I was ready to fight at a moment's notice. And uh, that was something that took a very long time to to try to get under control. But I would say that everything was so hampered by the amount of medication I was on from the VA and from the military. Uh, It it really, honestly, there's a gap in my memory really right through there. I I mean, I remember kind of bits and pieces and highlights, but I was so medicated like so many other soldiers at that time that it's just like a blur. You know, I I don't, I can't, I can't explain or even uh, understand some of the things that I was doing back then because I was so medicated, you know?
0: Right. And that seems to be a problem not just with soldiers, but in the civilian world that we have people with mental health conditions and whenever a symptom comes along, we just add another medication instead of trying to look at the root, which essentially what's supposed to happen is you have a depression. Okay, it's bad enough. You need an antidepressant. But you need to go therapy to find out why you're depressed. Right. Um, well, now you're depressed and you can't sleep. So now we're going to put you on a sleeping medicine, and and then that causes something else. And and uh, I had a client one time that she came in and and it was just like she wasn't there at all. And I looked at her med list and I'm going, I wouldn't be there at all either. Right. With with that amount of med- medication and. I think with lack of mental health care, not just in the civilian world, but more importantly in with our veterans, uh, that there is such a shortage of mental health professionals that um, people just kind of get lost in the mix. Right. And and they're just, you know, okay, well, let's fix this temporarily by putting this Band-Aid on, which is a medication. But now you have another problem because of this
1: medication. That's right. And that's exactly what happened to me and so many other soldiers and veterans that I I know and and have known was that we were so heavily medicated we were on so many narcotics like when I retired that it easily it easily flowed into something else right when they took my career essentially which is the way I viewed it I understand I was wounded but in my head that's the way I viewed it that's what I always wanted to do and when that was gone and then I was also unemployable uh, by the government I was 26 years old I had 100% disability social security combat special comp and I was sitting on home in Bonob, Arkansas. You know, I went from jumping out of choppers, uh, fighting in major battles, uh, and I was back home. And and it affected me profoundly. It affected my image of who I was inside. Uh, The way that I got out was something I'm still not proud of, you know, Uh, because I served honorably my whole career until then. And uh, and I wish I'd have done things different, but I also wish that there would have been more guidance uh, on how to deal with what I was dealing with, you know?
0: Sure. And and so I, I guess uh in, in dealing with other soldiers uh and talking to them, you kind of lost your purpose because here you were a soldier and now you're not. Exactly. You're just some civilian.
1: Sure. So even though I was National Guard, I spent I think seven years on active duty. Uh, it was just constantly either deploying, coming back from deployment, training for deployment. Uh, most of my uh, time during that time was on active duty, so for all intents and purposes, I was an active duty soldier. Uh, you know, and uh, when that was gone, you know, it really—I think that that really fed into what happened next. You know, I came home. Um, I kind of. Uh, got really, really depressed really fast, and I began abusing my medication, which was something that I didn't do too heavily while I was in. Uh, but when I got out, there was no limitations, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, No, nobody's uh, watching me anymore, or nobody cares, and I just kind of slid and, and it was fast. I began uh, intravenous uh, use of my, med- my my pain meds. Uh, luckily, that lasted until. But, well, not luckily, but it lasted for a couple of years, and uh, I finally sought help for that at the VA. And while I was in the uh, dual diagnosis program they had then, uh, my father died four mm-hmm. weeks in. And uh, so that really kind of uh, catapulted me into a whole nother uh, level of addiction. You know, uh, it compounded the issues I was having, and it was just a bad, like a perfect storm. You know what I mean?
0: Right. And so just to explain to listeners of a dual diagnosis, what that is is that there is some kind of addiction with a mental health issue. Sure. So you have you know, alcohol or drugs in addition to PTSD or bipolar or something of that nature that they're not opposite um, or, or complementary of each other. Now, backing up where you were abusing your prescription meds, were they always your medicine, or did you get to the point of where you had to find somebody else's medicine to to get?
1: So as was as is common with an opiate addiction, uh, which is a horrible, horrible thing, um, I mean, it's just—it's terrible. Uh, you know, after a while, you build up such a tolerance that even though I was getting still at that time 60 milligrams of Oxycontin, which is basically lab-grade heroin in the mail— uh, Uh, Every month, uh, 60 milligrams a day, I would burn through that probably in about two and a half weeks at the height of my addiction. And then I had to search for it on the streets. And Mm -hmm. so that became dangerous. And it uh, also affected my view of myself. And it just kind of fed into this cycle that I couldn't seem to break out of, you know.
0: And so in 2007, 2000, well, this would be now 2009 because you were in Texas for two, two years. years. I
1: retired in 2009.
0: Okay. So in 2009, we really hadn't started the whole war on drugs nope. at this point. And, and it was more of give them what they need to get by. And, and I think that in the medical world, there was this knowledge that it could be addictive, but how do you rate pain? How can you look on an image and say, yes, they have pain, if they're complaining, we need to give them something to make them comfortable.
1: What's terrible about that assumption is that uh is that as you become more addicted to the pain pills, your pain tolerance, your natural pain tolerance declines. Mm. And so what may not affect you if you weren't on those opiates is now almost unbearable. Uh, you know, and I didn't it was a hard lesson to learn too, is that I thought I was hurting worse than I was. And it took me getting clean for actually a long time to realize that I wasn't in as much pain. I'm in pain, I have pain, but not. Not as severe as my mind told me it was at one time, you know?
0: Right. And, and so when you're, when you're on all these opioids, uh, your brain actually starts sending pain signals in excess to these areas where you did have trauma. Uh, but it miscommunicates the level of pain or the severity of pain as a precursor to get more opioids in your system. That's right. Uh, and so your brain literally does, uh, work against you in in your addiction which then typically leads to other harder drugs
1: did you experience that that's exactly what happened so when my father passed uh it was a horrible situation i really respected and loved my father he adopted me when i was five i was kind of abandoned when i was three and by bloody as my great uncle and uh he him and my mom took me in when i was five adopted me and uh you know uh I was in the, uh, the dual diagnosis program for four weeks. <clears throat> and they picked me up on a Friday uh, and took me home for my fir- first weekend pass. Dropped me off. Actually, I think I drove my truck back Sunday night, and then he died Wednesday while I was in there. And obviously, that was pretty traumatic, um, you know. And I I was good for about a year. I liquid. I was helping to liquidate our farm and get the animals, you know, rid of the animals and everything because mom couldn't take care of them by herself and doing and working around the farm, helping her. And while I was doing that, and I had that purpose, I was fine. I, I was I was clean. I was happy. I was doing better, a no little. I mean, to a degree. And then, uh, and then, I'll be honest. That all got done and over with. And I found myself right back where I was at. I was essentially bored mm-hmm. with my life, uh, depressed again. And uh, honestly, <clears throat> I began using methamphetamines probably in about 2012, and uh, and it was immediate since I'd already had the experience with the uh, opiates. It was an immediate uh, intravenous addiction, uh, and that got out of control rapidly. So um, I began, uh, I went from, you know, I lost pretty much everything over the next several years I ended up living out of my truck essentially all of my money went to uh, narcotics uh, you know I roamed around with the wrong crowd I started begin I began getting in trouble uh here and there and uh and it just started this uh this vicious cycle of um, of addiction and uh, depression and and uh and loss of self-worth that that I'm Lucky didn't kill me, to be honest. So at the height of it, I was abusing about a gram of methamphetamine a day, every mm-hmm. day.
0: And, and what you said, kind of losing your purpose is is one of the major things when we deal with depression or anxiety or anything, that when we uh, kind of lose that identity as, as something that uh, we are a National Guardsman, and this is what I do, it's all I've ever done. And now I don't have an identity. I used to be respected, but now I'm not. You know, yeah. and, and maybe it's not that we're not respected, but we see ourselves as being disrespected. Um, and so one of the big things is structure. And you know, whether it's that you just have a to-do list for the day or you literally plan every minute of the day. When we get to those points, that's what we've got to do to find that that purpose once again, and so you know, just just like in your story, when when all the work was done and you went home and didn't have anything to do again, you turned back to something to numb the pain, which really wasn't as painful as as your brain
1: perceived it to be. Well, <laughs> there was a lot of pain there. Uh, I began dealing with survivor's guilt. I had you know, guilt from when I got my Valor decoration. I'm sure as you know, you don't get those for playing patty cake on the battlefield and, uh, uh, you know, and on and on and on the loss of my father, the guilt that I had of the way I was before he died. It took me a long time to realize that he, at least he was able to see me sober, you know, mm-hmm. before he passed. But at that time, all I could think about was like, I couldn't be there. I was, I was an addict and, uh, and, and really that was it. And, and that, that was the next five years of my life. Uh, just constant drug addiction uh, constant. I basically roamed around. I didn't stay in one place. I had major paranoia, uh, you know, from the methamphetamine I lost. I went down to, and I'm a big guy and, it, uh, I lost down to hundred and I think it was 65 or 70 pounds, which I look like mm-hmm. a skeleton and, uh, you know, and it was bad. Um, Pretty much, my entire family disowned me, uh, which I don't blame them. Uh, they stopped talking to me. They didn't want me around. That you know, every all of my military buddies didn't want me around, uh, and I don't blame them either. No, you know, in the hometown where I grew up, you know, I was just kind of an outcast, and uh, is what happens. And then I began to isolate. On top of that, so uh, in the end, uh, and around February twenty seventh, girl. I guess the first time was around October of 2016, I had my first suicide attempt. Uh, I, I just gave up. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I didn't see any way out of it. And what's ironic is that at that time, my mom was like, get involved. And she did talk to me on the phone occasionally. And she'd be like, you've got to get involved in a veterans organization. You've got to get out there and find something you believe in and do it. Or this is all you're ever going to be. you know. And she was like, you've got to get the help. And I didn't want to go back to the VA. I'll be honest, my dad dying while I was in there kind of was a dampener on me wanting to go to the VA. And even though it's not very rational, it's still I I associated that trauma with Mm. the VA, you know, took me a long time to realize that. But but uh, but but, yeah, so the first time I attempted, I actually uh, took a bunch of pills. I got a script. I took a bunch and I blacked out and uh, somebody found me and uh, I still don't know who it was but I woke up three days later at Fort Roots and I was they'd pumped my stomach and I was angry about that mm-hmm. and, uh, and honestly uh, you know it kind of made things worse and uh, uh, so I went on from then until about February and I was just miserable and I hated myself I hated my image of myself uh, I got to where I was kind of almost like feral I wouldn't even look people in the eye it was really strange right it's totally different from how I am now, uh, but I I was so beat down by everything, and I was so hopeless, and so finally, what I did it was I um, I went to an abandoned house in Judsonia, Arkansas that I know of or knew of. Um, that was, had had a fire in one room, and it was abandoned. And uh, I'd been in there several times with other addicts, and uh, I knew it was there. I knew it probably wouldn't be found. It's kind of off the beaten path. And so I went out there, and uh, I'd actually purchased heroin that day, which I didn't even do. To my credit, I guess, for what it's worth, uh, after I cleaned up off the opiates, so I never touched them again. I still have it to this day, you know. But that day, I figured that was the best way to do it, and so I bought some heroin and I went to that house and it was probably about four in the afternoon, you know, it was in the winter, I was in late in the afternoon and I went into that house and I sat on the floor and I thought for a minute about it. And then I decided that's what I wanted to do was to take my life. And I figured out there that I would die before anybody found me. And so I mixed up a, uh, shot of heroin uh, and it was a lot and I can assure you of that. And, uh, uh, I injected it, and it hit me instantly. Uh, I knew pretty much the second the plunger stopped that I that I'd overdosed and that I was probably gonna die. It was terrifying. Uh, it was the reaction was immediate. I was sweating. My vision was wavering. Uh, I threw up almost immediately. Uh, I, w- I couldn't really move. It pretty much incapacitated me almost immediately. I could see my. F- phone over to my right, kind of on that floor, which was dirty, and uh, I couldn't really reach it, and I was just, I was terrified, and uh, I remember thinking very clearly that if somebody came through the door of that place right then, that I didn't really want to die, that I'd get help, and you know, doing the whole (laughs) save me thing, but I knew nobody would come either, nobody knew where I was at, and essentially, I lost consciousness, and uh uh i laid there about 23 hours and uh while i was unconscious i lost bowel control um, um and when i finally gained consciousness i was literally partially frozen to the floor in my own excrement and vomit and uh i had to pry myself off the floor when i came around i actually had a little bit of this is really messed up but I had a little bit of meth left and almost out of reflex, I went to do it. And I actually mixed up a shot and uh, actually uh, started the uh, needle and hit the vein and saw the flesh and uh, uh, sat there and stared at it for a while. I don't know how long, but I remember staring at it, the blood in the syringe. And I was like, I just don't want to do this anymore, you know, and I can't explain it more than that. I had some strange experiences while I was unconscious that I can't really explain, but I do know that I stared at it and then um, I just kind of pulled it out and set it down and I got up and I walked out and that was it. And as far as I know, um, that stuff's still there. I don't know if that house is, I don't go over there, but I would assume unless I got it, it's still there. And, uh, um, but I left. And so what happened was I was just done. I was done with everything. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I was done with that. And I was done with all of that and uh, my whole life to that point. And so for about two weeks, I stayed sober on my own, just was. And I'll tell you at that time, I'd gotten so bad that my family had actually had a fiduciary placed on me through the VA. Mm. Uh, I was so bad. You know what I mean? Mm. They were trying to help me. But what was strange was that that was part of the reason why I killed myself too, because I was like I can't even control my own life, you know, like I'm worthless, and so when I decided I was clean, all of a sudden, essentially, because I never went to get help, nobody knew about that either. I, um, you know, like I just was. I don't know how else to say it. I was just done. And uh, so for two weeks, I kind of wandered around, and uh, I was trying to tell people, you know, hey, I'm done. But of course they don't believe you. You know, why would mm-hmm. they? You don't believe an addict, you know, that quick. And right. I get it now, you know, like I understand. But at the time, I was just so disheartened, and I was fighting with the VA trying to get my my income because I wanted to try to try to get my life together. And uh, they were like, well, this fiduciary is going to be on here for at least a year, you know, before you can get that lifted, just period. And I was fighting with them. And, uh, so about two weeks to the day after that, I went to, uh, (laughs) the Apple store of all places and, uh, Chanel, I actually drove to Little Rock to, uh, get my phone looked at. And, uh, uh, I was in there and, uh, had my service dog at the time and I was sitting at a table and I wouldn't really look at anybody. Like I told you, that was still going on. And uh, I was so kind of like ashamed of myself or whatever. And, uh. Uh, a gentleman walked in. I'm Larry Johnson in a nice suit. He sat across from me. You understand, it's time. The scar on my arm, right here, those trademarks were so very red and inflamed, right? And uh, he had no reason to talk to me. Uh, I looked kind of grungy, I know. And uh, uh, he sat across from me, though, and uh, he started a conversation with me. That's what he does. And uh, we talked for about thirty minutes, and we were both at that time complaining about the VA, you know, my fiduciary and whatever he was going through at the time. And, uh, uh, so when they called my name, I got up to go and he was like, Hey, if they give you any more trouble, you know, call this number. And, um, I was like, yeah, man, you know, a lot of people say a lot of things and I didn't think about it, but it said French Hill. I had no idea who that was. And, uh, I put it in my pocket and, uh, did my phone thing and I went home. Well, the very next day I was at the VA and they were kind of jerking me around about this fiduciary again. You know, I wasn't getting any headway. I was getting more and more angry. I uh, could not get access to the funds. I needed to even get a place of my own or anything. And I was just kind of stra- stranded. Uh, nobody wanted to loan me money for sure. You know what I mean? Mm. And uh, so, uh, so I didn't know I was just angry and I was upset. And I pulled that card out of my wallet and I was like, you know what? I'm mad enough. I don't know who this is. I'm going to give him a call. Mm. And, uh, So when I did, you know, they were like Congressman French Hill's office, and I was kind of shocked because I had no idea, and I was like, oh, hey, you know, Larry Johnson told me to call, and they go, oh, you know, Larry, and um, so they connected me to a really good friend of mine now named David Carnahan, Uh, and long story short, within about a month, he was able to get that fiduciary taken off my account, and from there, when I got the money that had been held in the fiduciary account back, I used that money to start Watt 22. But before that happened, I actually got off the phone with them and I took out the other, looked at the other side of the car and it was Larry's number. And I called him. I was like, sir, I don't know who you are. But I want to thank you. You just helped me. And, uh, he invited me over to his house right then. Again, did not have to do that. Did not know me. And, uh, I, I went over there and began a very long friendship that goes on to this day. In fact, I'll probably go over there this afternoon. And, uh, uh, but he asked me and he was the first person to really ask me. He was like, cause when I went over there that afternoon, I told him everything. I was like, you helped me and you didn't have to do that. And here's, who i am and i just want to be honest with you for you here somewhere else and uh and i've stuck by that this whole time too by the way and that's very important to do and uh so you know and he goes well good you're clean what are you gonna do now and (laughs) i was like well i don't know he goes well what do you want to do i go well you know i mean i don't know i guess help people i can't really work you know and he goes have you ever thought about a 501c3 and I was like, "No, I don't even know what that is." He goes, "It's a nonprofit." Now, at that time, I'd never even been in, a, in, a, in an organization, um, you know, and so I had no idea what I was doing. But it started a, a spark in me, started me thinking. And uh, he was like, "You know what? You know what's affected you?" And immediately, I was like, "Well, suicide." It just mm-hmm. changed my whole life, and uh, and so. I had this idea in my head at first, and this is really how this all started. A lot of people don't know this, and I, I was going to combat the VA, right? And uh, so that's what I was going to do. We were going to have protests around the country, and we were going to fight the VA. Well, I found out really quick after the June 4th pro, uh, rally we had at the Capitol that the VA will not work with you if you're protesting them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so first lesson learned. Um, so um, after that rally... I realized that even though we'd achieved some things with the VA, we'd at least got their attention, uh, which was instrumental in later events. Uh, uh, I actually looked at the uh, suicide epidemic from a different perspective. And what I saw at that time, honestly, man, was a lot of walks and a lot of talks, a lot of fundraisers, a lot of awareness. But in my opinion, I didn't see anybody actually doing anything. Mm. And, uh, and so the more I thought about that, kind of the angrier I got and I was like you know uh some of these guys just need somebody to care enough to be there that's all it is that's all I really needed was somebody just to you know help pull me out of where I was at and encourage me to go further and um and so uh this really simple idea came to my head turned out to be not so simple but simple at the time that I was like well what if there's another veteran that's where I was at at one time was in that house and they're not really wanting to die they just want somebody to help them i was like what if we went and we helped them period and that started the we are the 22 that is today that idea took spark it was a little spark and it took hold and so about july um of that same year 2017 i uh, and you got to think so i went from grandma day methamphetamine addict and you can ask anybody it's well known fact uh february 17th of that year to started the foundation in May of 17. And by July, we started suicide intervention operations. Um, and the way we started that in the beginning was we put our number out there and we're just like, hey, if you're a veteran that's struggling in the state of Arkansas, give me a call. I will come to you. So we started that. And we actually had our first response not long after that. And uh, we learned a lot from that response. Uh, at the end of that response, we had shots fired on the scene. We had law enforcement involved. It was a very um, intense uh, uh response. Um and uh but we learned all of the a lot of the things that we do now from that response. So we started building what we have now. So over the next I would say seven months, I went on response after response after response. It was uh and I did I traveled all over the state. I went anywhere anytime. Uh and slowly other veterans uh started paying attention and they were like we can do that. Um, I began having meetings with Little Rock PD, North Little Rock PD, MEMS, the VA, uh, and I began learning what it was going to take to do this. And we began building a curriculum and a, a training and, uh, and everything that we have now. Uh, but it was a process. You understand at that time, there was no blueprint. There was nobody doing this. This literally came out of thin air and hard work, but the idea has never changed. And uh was that, one, nobody understands a veteran like a veteran. And two, you know, a veteran can't say you don't care if you're there at 2 a.m., right? Mm. Now, I remembered a a few other things during that time. I did actually call the suicide hotline, which is a great resource. I'm not knocking it. But I think it was right before they had the state hotline. And I ended up being a lady from Oregon. And we talked for a little bit. And then when we hung up, I was still sitting there. By myself, you know, and that led to my suicide attempt. And so uh, now when you call Watt 22 if you're a veteran in crisis in the state of Arkansas uh, and you call our hotline, then uh, we'll activate a two-man team of trained veterans. We'll send them into to you. They'll sit down with you and talk and let you get your story out. Uh, They will do whatever it takes to get you through that crisis. Things that they're capable of doing that you can't do at the hotline is when they show up, they're able to assess, are your lights on? Do you have water? Are your kids fed? Do you have clothes on your back? You know, things like you have heat in your house, uh, if it's cold, you have AC if it's hot, you know, and they can begin the process of addressing those issues. Because what we found is a lot of times those minor, they're not minor minor to the person in crisis, but those issues, the day-to-day issues, exasperate the other issues and lead to a crisis situation. And a lot of times, if you can alleviate those day-to-day issues, you can alleviate a lot of the other problems as well. So,
0: Sure. and And, you know, when dealing with a veteran in crisis, which I've, I have dealt with before and we've, we've worked together with, with one veteran. Um, they can say to me, you just don't understand. And I don't, you know, as, as a civilian who's never served uh, in the military in any short shape or form or fashion, I don't understand. Uh, I don't know what it's like to be in Afghanistan and see, your friends die. I don't understand that survival uh, survivors guilt to that point, yeah. and so it really is um, helpful, and I think imperative that it is veteran led, so that so that they see. Somebody who's
1: been in their shoes. So I'll tell you, uh, uh, and this is the beautiful irony of all this is that the scar that's on my arm, I don't know if listeners can't see, but it is there. (laughs) Uh, the track marks is what it is from when I was an, an intravenous junkie. Um, uh. Ironically, that ugly scar that I was so ashamed of became my best tool in the beginning of all this because when I would run across veterans, because I did in the beginning, uh, they would meet me and they'd be like, man, you don't understand. And I'd be like, bro, I'm Purple Heart Valor Decorated, and I would point to that scar and I'd be like, there's nothing you can tell me, man. I've been homeless. I've been a junkie. I've been, you know, strung out. I've been lost and I've I've attempted suicide. Right. I do understand. And I believe that you can you can get through this and I want to help you. And uh that right, that alone uh, persuaded more veterans when I was still responding regularly than anything else I could have said, right? It was that that idea that that okay, you've been there. And you can't deny that you've been there and you got out of it. So there's got to be a way out of here. You know? Right.
0: And, and you know, while you said you don't knock any of the national or state suicide mm-hmm. lines. are good uh, assets. Yeah, I, I don't either. But the point is that you don't have to tell them who you are or where you're at. And so they're literally a counselor on the other end of the telephone that, In many times, they this person has committed suicide while still on the phone. They don't know where they're at. They they have no way of knowing, or um, they don't know how to contact your family. When you hang up, you're still alone. You're still right where you were, Um, and and that's that's a a huge detriment. But in in your organization with we are the twenty two. You don't leave them alone.
1: No, you go. You go to where they're at. So we have we have a lot of uh, a lot of things have changed since 2017. We now have capabilities that uh, are pretty profound in what we do. Uh, one, we have amazing. We have an amazing team. I have as of Saturday over 70 active responders in the state of Arkansas. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's huge. And. Uh, uh, we have amazing dispatchers. And, uh, for instance, though, if we have a veteran who's missing or who we're trying to get hold of that we think is an imminent threat of uh, self harm, we can now coordinate with law enforcement uh, dispatches and actually ping their cell phones and find where they're at and go into them. Once you call us, you are, we're coming to you, period. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, so there is no getting out of that. But, uh, but, uh, um, uh, Uh, That said, like uh, uh, what we've learned is from our heavy social media presence that we have here in the state, like our Facebook, we've got about 36,000 followers on that, which is pretty, pretty awesome, uh, is that a lot of times, unlike the suicide hotlines, what, and I, I can't give you a percentage, but it's off the top of my head. I'd say it had to be seventy percent of the uh, the the callers or, or uh, people that we that reach out to us are not the veteran. A lot of times, their mom, dad, brother, sister, buddy down the road, or old army buddy that'll call us up because they've heard about our organization. They'll be like, "Hey, Johnny's over here struggling. Uh, can y'all can y'all go talk to him?" And we will. And so what that actually does is gives us this beautiful window of surprise where they don't know we're coming. And then and this has literally happened where we show up to a house in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas, and I've literally looked through a door or through a window pane on a front door and seen a kitchen light on and a guy sitting at the table, and you could clearly see a 45 and a bottle of whiskey on either side of him, and he was sitting there in between them. And uh, we knocked on the door, and they'll come to the door, and you'll just be like, "Hey, man, I heard you heard you're a veteran, heard you're struggling, and we just want to help. We're not law enforcement, uh, you know. We're not the VA. We're literally just veterans who care enough to be here and help you out. And I've, it, it, a lot of times, that alone will trigger an emotional response. Uh, they're so surprised to see somebody care that much to be there that you have this beautiful window of uh, time to kind of make a connection and, and get in, you know, get them to trust you. Uh, because they cannot again say you don't care because you're there and right. it's cold and it's two a.m. and you're you're all hour away from home. There's no way they can deny that you have their best interest in mind.
0: Right, and you don't know them. Oh, no, you don't. You don't know nope. what they've been through, their problems. You don't. Uh, there's no way that they could say, well, you're going to judge me because because you don't know.
1: Nope. And what we found is. And the other side of this that's really, really beautiful is that, uh, you know, we started doing this and we were only focused on the veterans we were responding to. Uh, we developed a, one of the most intense and... Uh, I think in depth uh, suicide intervention uh, programs in the country right now. To be honest with you, we consulted a lot of major agencies. We, we we took all of that into consideration and built this awesome program. But what we've learned as the years have went on is how much we are helping the responders as well. Mm-hmm. We're taking guys like myself who maybe can't hold a regular job, uh, who are disabled physically uh, or, or whatever, pretty much whatever the circumstances, and uh, who maybe have been addicts, who have been homeless, and have turned their lives around and we're giving them a uniform and we're giving them a purpose, and we're giving them a mission. And they're going out there, and they're saving other veterans themselves. And there's no way that you can go on one of these responses and get that veteran into the VA or get a safe plan in place and go home at night. You might, you might be exhausted. You might have been talking to them for five hours, but you know for a fact that you made a difference that day, and that's profound.
0: Yeah, and, and that's that's what we all need yeah. is is that purpose and something to look forward to. How many times have you responded – and it been too late once,
1: uh, and but when I say too late, what I mean by that is we have never, thank God, um, responded on a completed suicide. Uh, statistically, we know that that will probably happen as we advance this and we we train our responders to be prepared for it, and we have protocols in place in case it does happen. Uh, but we have not yet. We have, though, responded uh, after an overdose. Uh, to where the, the veteran was unconscious and uh, the pill bottles were everywhere when we got there. Uh, and we were able to immediately activate uh, me- or the local ambulance service, get them to the hospital, and save their life. Uh, our responders do. We are fully equipped with trauma kits, Narcan, and we actually wear a uh, subdued Bonnie Arbor underneath our polos uh, because we don't want to appear tactical and we don't want to scare them, but we do have to be safe. Sure. Uh, we're going into volatile situations sometimes uh but but yes so we are prepared in case uh, of anything so if we get there and they've already cut we're able to render aid we're able to stop the bleed put a tourniquet on call 911 Uh, if we get there and they've overdosed we can hit them with the narcan bring them back until the ambulance gets there uh we go in ready to save lives that's what we do so um
0: and so on average how many responses do you make in a year
1: uh, so that varies, and uh, we have a we have a saying uh, or an idea that if we don't get a response in a day, that's a good day. It mm-hmm. means that somebody wasn't in a place they needed us. I can't really break down the numbers by year because they fluctuate, but I can tell you that since our inception, we've responded to over 430 Arkansas veterans in suicidal crisis. Wow!
0: Yeah. Now the the instance that that you and I worked together uh, was a veteran who uh, was a member of my church here. And he called and said, I just want to let you know I'm going to kill myself. And that's not typically a call you get. You know, Um, you don't typically get get those. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as as a preacher, you don't typically get (laughs) those kind of calls. And uh, and what I said to him was, I don't want you to die alone. So let me get there and be with you when you do it. And that element of shock and care and concern left him to the point of where he agreed. Uh, what I have found in people who are suicidal is I've never had anybody who's attempted suicide that said they wanted to die. What they've always told me was there wasn't any other way. Right. And so it's that offering of hope that that you give or that the responders give that really makes the ultimate difference. But there has to be that convincing factor that yes, we're still gonna be here to help you after we get you somewhere. How do you handle the follow-up to to these crisis situations?
1: So what we do is uh, generally we'll go in and we'll talk to the veteran. I will say that the majority of the time we have found that the veteran just needs somebody to listen. They have got, they, you know, they, they don't feel like they have anybody in their circle they can talk to, uh, you know. And they, or they're, they're ashamed to tell you. Or they're ashamed, that's right. And so you come in as a complete stranger, and a lot of times they can open up and really get stuff off their chest. And we find that uh, that, that is the case the, most, the majority of the times. So a lot of times you can sit there for a couple hours, uh, let them talk, and uh, get it all out, and be a good ear for them. And they're going to be okay, right? And uh, they'll at least maybe they'll be able to reassess their situation or whatever. Uh, occasionally you get some that uh – they need to go in and get some help. And we were, we were trained to identify that. Uh, we work very closely with the Central Arkansas VA, VA healthcare system. They're amazing. We've worked a lot of cases together now. And uh, so we'll help get them into, you know, a program. Maybe they're addicted, they need to go do a, a dry out for 30 days, or they need a PTSD program. We help work with the VA to facilitate that for them in a smooth and timely manner. And, uh, and that makes them feel like their problems matter and uh and that that we that that somebody cares uh now once our responders respond to a veteran they are required to keep follow-up uh at least every day, every other day. Some of them will do it every day. Some of them do it every other day for, for a period of time uh, until, you know, the veteran either uh, requests that we don't call them, which does happen sometimes. We're fine with that. Or uh, until we uh, figure out a way to alleviate whatever problems that we found uh, that they may have had. During that time, you know, well, if they if we know their lights are out or we know they have an issue like that, they don't have food, we'll work with local churches and get a food drop done on their house. We'll work with the uh, electric company, you know, and try to get some really... On them, uh, given the situation, you know whatever we can do, uh, and, and generally uh, we'll call them again about about six months later and just check on them. And a lot of times, it's really cool to hear how much they've changed and that encouragement that they get for those first couple weeks out of the crisis uh, is pretty is pretty neat. It, it kind of uh, it can it can really change their perspective, you know. And so basically, that's it. We just provide uh, a, a voice that's there. We don't just dump them off the VA and. That's it. You know, we do have like a small time limit on it or or a a required time. But if they need more, more conversation, we do that for sure. You know what I mean?
0: And so how many, how many veterans have you assisted that now work with? We are the 22
1: that's interesting so uh off the top of my head i would say uh about 15 but they are some of the best responders that we have you know what i mean i mean all of our responders are amazing don't get me wrong but but again there's a special passion special fire that you find in the guys who have been on the receiving end of a response mm. and now they're out doing it you know what i mean yeah. they they you just you just really can't duplicate that, and that's what we like to see is for a veteran to get help and get lined out, and then turn around and do what we're doing because that's going to be the key to make this work. We want to see this go around the country. We want to empower veterans to save each other. Uh, you know, for too long we've waited on uh, the powers that be to save us, and we've depend you know relied on uh, whatever. Government assistance or whatever uh, is out there, but but we believe that it that it comes down to us. We believe that that um, this is something that should be uh, should be grown, should be fostered, and we work on that every single day. That's what I do now is try to grow this program, uh, get the word out there, let veterans know we're here. You know, work with local law enforcement agencies, uh, you know, because that's the thing there too is that the law enforcement agencies are realizing that we're an asset, we're a tool Mm -hmm. for them. Uh, If we're on a scene with law enforcement and they don't want to talk to the officer, they may talk to us. You know what I mean? We've even had officers allow us to transport them to the VA, and that's amazing. We love it when that happens because now they're not getting put in a squad car. They don't feel like their problems are, you know, getting them in trouble or whatever. They're able to get in a car with a couple of vets. We're able to joke and laugh, get them a hamburger. On the way and get them there and do a warm handoff with the Central Arkansas VA healthcare system. And that's that encourages them to, if they have a problem again, reach out, you know, reach out for help. It's imperative that if a veteran reaches out for help, that they have a good experience with that help. Okay. Because if they don't, I guarantee you they won't reach out again. Right. Why would they? Right. You know,
0: uh, in the situation that you and I worked together on, if you recall, was in the middle of COVID or at the very beginning of COVID. And you weren't allowed to respond. No. And I ended up taking him to the VA in, in Little Rock and they turned him away uh, because of his use of words. He said that he wanted to kill himself, not that he was going to kill himself. Yep. And uh, which, which turned into a, an ordeal uh, for you and for me. Uh, I was angry. You were processing on how to make this work. Right. Uh, you've you've been there before. I, I've seen that before. Yeah, yeah. And so so we once we had him admitted, I, I allowed for the seventy two hours, you know, to kind of go by before I called. And and when I called, they had not started him on any medication or any type of treatment. Is that typical for the VA?
1: So, I will say that during COVID, things changed drastically, okay? So, what was going on during the, the initial part of that virus was not what was happening in 2019, right? 2019, it, they were on fire. They were doing amazing things. We were rolling vets in. They were getting them help. And, uh, and I can't speak to... I do know that when the COVID protocols took place and everything, and we couldn't respond, we couldn't go in. It, it hampered, it dampened our operations. Uh, you know, you couldn't just put a guy directly into treatment. They had to, de- you know, quarantine for two weeks uh, and isolate and everything. And uh, it which was just, is the worst thing if
0: you're already suicidal?
1: Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? You know, mm-hmm. like you can't you can't deposit somebody from the outside into an inpatient program and get everybody sick and possibly die. That's a bad idea. From I'll just speak to my own experience of uh, because I've been to 3K and I've I've been through all that myself. Uh but but generally uh they would they would start trying to treat you immediately. I, I don't I can't speak to why they may not have done at that time, you know.
0: Well I, I think it's important at least to to point out in in this story is that ultimately it was not a mental health condition. He had a brain tumor. And I think that a lot of times, and even with TBIs, we need to, as family, understand that they may be suicidal, but there may be a, a reason, medical reason, why they're that way.
1: Absolutely, and a lot of times we, we do see that quite quite often where there's is untreated uh, issues. Uh, perhaps they're not taking their medication for issues that already exist, and then they expound on each other and create a crisis. Uh, we do see that. Uh, and so what we try to do when we do those follow-up calls is, did you take your meds today, man? Are you on your meds? You know, we'll try, you know, uh, try to encourage them to do that and get on their medication. And just in my own experience, a lot of times – after a veteran's been out a while, it's not necessarily just the PTSD that drives them to a crisis. It's almost always a relationship, money, uh, you know, living situation uh, and not taking their medication for already uh, diagnosed issues. You know, mm-hmm. those are probably, in my experience, the four biggest factors. I mean, there's others, obviously, but but those are the ones you see pretty regularly. And so uh, that's why, uh, you know, we work closely with the VFW. We work closely with uh uh, we'll work closely with anybody, really, if they want to help vets. And uh, we try to we try to serve our organization. Uh, we don't get into all this interorganizational organizational rivalry that I think is uh, detrimental to the overall cause. Uh, we've tried to position ourselves to be a catalyst uh, to getting veterans help. We'll work with any organization. And in fact, uh, even though we do love to bring in veterans to our work after we've helped them, um, you know, we love to see that. But in our opinion, it doesn't matter what a veteran does after they've received and after they've sought and received treatment. Uh, as long as they're getting involved with something and getting out in the community like my mother told me originally and it worked right like she was right uh which moms a lot of times are uh was that i had to get involved i had to find a purpose and I had to do it well that's exactly what i've done and it's changed my whole life and we believe that for every veteran so uh, you know we may work with them with one organization to get a bill paid or something and then they may say well i have an interest in this we may connect them to another organization that does that you know our only goal is to help that veteran you know so we're not in competition with anyone
0: so if if you were a veteran uh, and you were feeling depressed, no purpose, but not yet to a point of suicidal ideologies. Where would you go to look for some place to fit in, some place to help? Because to me, it's it, you know, you said a little earlier, there's a lot of groups that are advocating for this and a lot of groups that are raising money for this and talking about it, but there was nobody actually doing the work right So in in trying to, Isolate these these people that may be headed that direction. Maybe if maybe if your mom had said, you know, you really need to get plugged into somewhere. And here's a list of things that you might like.
1: We actually have that. So we have a list of organizations, especially well, primarily Arkansas organizations, but we have a couple programs uh, out of state with Mighty Oaks and a few others that uh, that we will Uh, try to steer a veteran to, you know, especially if they don't want to go to the VA. I know that uh, our friend, with Sheepdog here in Arkansas, they've Mm -hmm. got a great program, Warrior's Path. They just set up. We're real uh, excited about that. And what we'll do is we'll sit there and be talking to a veteran. If they're like, man, I don't want to go to the VA, but I'd kind of like some, some – like a little bit, you know, like some help. Uh, we'll 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 tell them to go with to the Sheepdog. They've got a seven day great PTSD program that uh, it's called Warrior's Path that uh, that we're very uh, excited about, and we'll we'll try to steer them that way. We'll get a phone out and help them fill out the application, get it in, and uh, whatever we can do to kind of fit their needs. But but really, it's anything it's really anything they the social the thing is is almost without fail when you're headed down that spiral into a crisis you've isolated or or you've mm-hmm. drove away let's say the people that care about you you've uh, you and a lot of times you, you know you've got a problem to some degree and uh you probably stop going out you stop finding enjoyment in the things you used to like to do so we'll be like hey man let's go kayaking let's go let's go uh let's go talk to this organization over there they're having a picnic maybe you should go to that it's in your hometown you know just anything anything we can think of but we do have a list of orgs that we uh that we consult with that uh that if a veteran has certain things they like to do that we can just be like hey Let's give you a warm handoff to these guys over here. We know, and let's let's get you doing that as fast as we can. You know, sir. So.
0: so, what 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 would happen if somebody called your organization who was not a veteran?
1: That does happen, and uh, unfortunately, you know, I've been asked uh, through the course of doing this for the last four years. I've been I've been asked, you know, why don't you do this for everybody? One, logistically, I don't know how we would do it. Uh, financially, I don't know how we would do it. That would open you up to thousands of calls probably overnight uh and as though although we want to help everybody it's just not practically feasible uh so Uh, occasionally, rarely we have somebody because we're pretty clear that we're veterans, you know, and, uh, uh, but occasionally we have somebody that'll call in, uh, and what we do in those regards is we try to coach whoever calls us because normally not the person in crisis is probably a family member or something that's concerned and we'll encourage them. Are they getting mental health care? And generally that answer is no. And we'll say, well, we have some therapists and some counselors that we work with that are civilians perhaps you could work out a deal with them and get them some help. Uh, you know, uh, we, we recommend Bridgeway when it's really bad. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times it's just getting into therapy, getting into counseling. That's so important for your mental health. And uh, generally when people say something, they, they're not in any of that. So, uh, you know, we try to encourage them to do that, um, you know, but there's not much we can do. And, I, and I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I joined the military when I was 17 and all of my health care is been military and veteran related, so I'm not even really up on what's available and out there for civilians, you know, so uh, generally it's just, we just tell them to try to get some therapy and uh, things like that. The The model that we're built on is that peer-to-peer, and we don't have that with regular civilians, you know, so it kind of, it's kind of a damner, and as far as I know, there isn't an operation like this for civilians, so, right. you know.
0: Well, I, I'm I'm certainly glad that you use this crisis for good. Uh, it would have been very easy for for someone to just decide that I'm going to continue to isolate or even attempt suicide again after uh, a little bit of treatment. Uh, but it's those times that when we take the bad and turn it into good that we find purpose again.
1: Yep. Uh, You're absolutely right. And uh, if you'd asked me four years ago if I thought I'd be where I'm at now, uh, (laughs) there's no way. You know, Mm -hmm. I I couldn't see the me today. And I think that that's so important to tell people who are out there struggling right now is that, you know, right now it may look dark and it may look hopeless, but but, uh, I truly and firmly believe that anybody can change. Uh, The trick is, is that, Eventually, your desire to change has to become greater than your desire to stay the same. And once and it sounds so simple when you say it, but it's the truth. You have to want to change more than you want that next hit or that yeah. next that next shot or whatever it may be it's been a wild ride we've uh, accomplished a lot of things we've helped a lot of veterans and and we're not stopping and uh we're only getting better we're, we're enhancing and growing our operations uh we are uh doing everything I c- we can to make this a very robust and uh, effective program so very proud of it and very proud of my people
0: Well, well, I for one am am thankful for you and for, for your organization and, and, um, I'm just happy to see that there is resources available for our veterans. Uh, Michael, tell us uh, where our listeners can find more information about We Are The 22.
1: Absolutely. So uh, first and foremost, we have our website. uh, It's at wearethe 22org just like it sounds. Um, And if you go there, you can uh, see a little bit about our operations. We also have our Facebook page at We Are The 22. Uh, And then... Here's the most importantly, we have our hotline. And so right now, if there is a veteran in the state or that that's struggling, and or if there is if you know of a veteran out there that's struggling, uh, you can call our hotline anytime, day or night. It's man 24 hours a day. We will pick up. Uh, and that number is 1855-932-7384. That's one 855 932 7384 seven, three, eight, four. And, uh, if you can't remember that and you're in a hurry, if you'll dial one, eight, five, five, we are the 22, it will ring through. I know that's too many digits, but mm-hmm. it'll ring through. So, yeah. uh, but that's just an easy way to remember. And, uh, we will get some help out to you. You don't have to do this alone. And so, yeah.
0: Right. Uh, of course, we'll have all of that in the description of this podcast. And so I appreciate you once again, uh, being with us here today and sharing your story.
1: Absolutely, thank you, Doc.
0: All right, I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at thedocbrian.com. All of my social media links are at the bottom of that website. Also, Doc Talks is a part of the Be frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts at Befranknetwork.com. Michael, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. we appreciate your work. Thank you, Doc. All right, everybody, have a good day.